So you go in the airport, you're surrounded by these HSBC billboards and the billboards are so like big picture, you know, they have this billboard and it says together apart. And I'm like, are you a bank? <laughs> like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Hi, and welcome to the June podcast. I'm your host, Enzo, co-founder at June. In this show, I'm talking to the most inspiring product and growth leaders out there. We'll share their tips on how to launch and grow your SaaS. No fuss, no BS. I hope you enjoyed the show. So hi, April, and welcome to the podcast. How are things? Oh, I'm great. How are things with you? I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, great. Uh, also super excited to have you in to chat about positioning and growing B2B SaaS companies. I really love your book, uh, Obviously Awesome, How to Stand Out in a Noisy, Crowded Market. It was one of the books that really shed some light on our positioning when we needed most last year. So mm. thank you so much for writing it. That's so good to hear. Uh, you have also another book coming in, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But before that, I just want to give a quick introduction about you, if some people haven't heard about you yet. So you are an experienced startup executive with a profound interest in how companies bring new offering to markets. You have extensive expertise in market positioning, and you have successfully launched 16 products into the markets. Your professional journey before that, including holding executive roles in series of thriving startups, where you serve as CEO, CEO, VP of marketing, or sometimes VP of marketing and sales. And uh, you work at companies like IBM or Huawei, to just name a few. There's many, many more. You've also been actively involved in fundraising, in mentorship, in angel investing, and uh, recently in public speaking, where people may have uh, discovered you. So that's a lot. Uh, April, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's good to be here. It sounds good when you say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's your life. It's awesome. How do you reflect on, on this, uh, on this yeah, uh, life you know, so far? Uh, it, it sounds like a lot of stuff, but, you know, but I've been around doing this for a long time. So, you know, for the, for the longest time, you would have just described me as a VP marketing like that. Like that was my jam. I, I come in to a venture back startup, be the vice president of marketing. If I was doing my job right, things were growing and then we would get acquired and then I would stick around at the acquired company for a while and then I would pop out and do it again. And for 25 years, that's all I did. Nothing but that. But I switched seven or eight years ago to doing consulting. And so that's been a big change. Um, so now I work with growing tech companies and all I do a very niche thing. Like I just do positioning. Um, part of that work is we're developing a sales pitch. That's it. Like I don't do, like there's all kinds of marketing things that marketing people do that I don't do. Um, and so, you know, when you're doing that, you know, writing a book's a good thing, doing some public speaking, some a good thing. <laughs> Some of these companies are raising money, so I throw some money in there, so that makes me an angel investor, I guess. But um, but I still think of myself primarily as a marketing executive, and now it's more of a marketing consultant. I'm curious to hear how you how you boil down to this uh, concept of um, you know positioning. I mean, positioning is something we we study in every marketing books. Yeah. But yet it's quite elusive, right? And I think one of the very unique yeah. things you have done in your writing and public speaking is give a new sense to that word. How did you come up to that realization that positioning had such an important role to play? Yeah. You know, part, part of it was just circumstances. Like in my very first job that I got at a startup, um, it, the, the company had multiple products, but because I was brand new, I, I got hired as 
a product marketer and I got assigned to the product that was no good. <laughs> so the product was kind of a failure. Like we had launched it into market, spent a bunch of money marketing it. It didn't really take off. And so part of my job was to figure out if people were going to be unhappy if we turned it off. And through talking to customers, I realized that there were a very small number of customers using that product in a way that we had never predicted. And so we did a very brave thing as a company and decided to reposition the product into this other market. And the results were like magic. Like, you know, the, the product started selling like crazy. We started growing. It became, you know, by far the lead product in the company. We eventually got acquired on the strength of that product. So that really opened my eyes like, wow, this positioning thing, like if you get it wrong, it's bad. And if you get it right, it's magic. Um, and then at the new company, after we got acquired, the new company said, well, we got, we got a bunch of junky bad products around. Maybe you could work that repositioning magic on them too. And I realized like, we had just kind of fooled around until we got something that worked. Like I didn't know how to do it again. And so that kind of led me down this path of, you know, learning about positioning and reading books and taking courses and trying to figure it out. And, you know, over the course of 10 years or so, I developed a methodology, which is a fancy way of saying this is how I do it. And then at the end of my career as a vice president of marketing, you hired me because of that. Because if, you know, if you thought the positioning was bad, I would come in in an interview and say, hey, I, you know, I think the positioning's weak. We could make it better. And here's how we're going to do it. One, two, three, four, five. So when I switched to doing consulting, it made sense to me that I would just focus on that. It, it seemed like a thing that people didn't know how to do. I knew how to do it. <laughs> that was going to be my edge. And I could teach companies how to do it. So it took me a while to get really good at teaching it. Once I got good at teaching it, I thought it would make sense to write a book about that. And now I'm the positioning lady. That's kind of my jam. What was the old way of, uh, you know, explaining positioning to people? And what is this method that you came up with? Yeah. So, so when I started, um, so first of all, people really confuse positioning with other things. So they'll say, oh, I know what positioning is. It's just like messaging. And I'm like, actually, no, like we actually have to have positioning before we do messaging. Or they'll say, the one that really bugs me is people talk about brand positioning. This drives me crazy. There's branding, there's positioning. Those are two completely different things. So uh, the way I thought about it was positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at something, like delivering some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. So when I first dug into this stuff, the, the accepted way of doing positioning was using something called a positioning statement, which you know, I first learned it in a class and it was like, it's like a mad libs fill in the blank thing. Like we are a blank that does blank unlike blankety blank blank. And you know, what bugs me about that is it's not a methodology. It is at best a way of writing down positioning. Like if you look at the blanks, there's a blank in there that says market category. I could position almost any product in a dozen market categories. So how do we know what the best market category is there? And nobody had the answer for that. And I was like, well, we can't do positioning unless we know how to do that. <laughs> and so in my thinking, after looking at this for a long time, I thought, well, maybe I could logic this out. And so the way I approached it was I said, well, 
you know, I have an engineering background. So I thought we'll do this. We'll solve this. Like we solve engineering problems. Like I'm going to break positioning down into component pieces, solve for the component pieces, figure out how to smash them together. Voila, good positioning. So breaking it into pieces isn't hard. Like we kind of agree on what the piece parts are of positioning and it's the blanks and the positioning statement. So there's five of them. One is competitive alternatives. If you didn't exist, what would a customer do? The second is, um, differentiated or capabilities or distinct capabilities. What do you have that the other guys don't have? Third one is value. The customers don't actually care about your features. They care about what those features can do for their business. So the value that only you can deliver is your differentiated value. That's important. The next one is target customers. We're not trying to sell to everybody. We're trying to sell to whoever's a good fit for our stuff. And the last one's market category. Am I email or am I chat? Like, how do I contextualize this thing so people kind of get it? So I started with that. And the interesting thing was once I broke it apart into pieces, then I started to see that, you know, the pieces actually have a relationship to each other. Like they're not independent. So if I think about differentiated value, the value your product can deliver that no one else can is completely dependent on what? Like it's dependent on your features, <laughs> your differentiated features. Like we don't get to just make it up. It comes from there. And then if I think about that, well, my differentiated features are only differentiated when I compare them to a competitor. So those three things are all linked. And then if I'm thinking about best fit customers, my definition of a best fit customer, that's a customer that really, really cares a lot about the value that only I can deliver. So that's related. And then market category is a little more esoteric, but if I think about it as context, you know, the context I position a product in my best market category makes this value kind of obvious to these people. So if everything has a relationship to each other, where do I start? And for a long time, I was really stuck there. Like I had the piece parts, but I couldn't figure out a method to figure them out because they were all related. So I thought it was a spiral. Like you just pick a spot, you work your way around, you develop candidate positioning, you you know, throw it out in the market. It works great. You run with it. It doesn't, you throw it out, you come back, you try again. Um, how I got out of this was uh, a long story, but I discovered Clayton Christensen's work and I got kind of deep on jobs to be done. And I was trying to figure out how does jobs thinking intersect with positioning and where I landed on was that we actually have to start with competitive alternatives in the minds of customers. Like if you didn't exist, what would a customer do or what is a customer comparing you to, which includes the status quo thing that they're doing right now. So we start there and then we say, okay, this is what I have to position against or what I have to beat in order to win a deal. And then I can say, well, I can move to distinct capabilities and say, well, what have I got that they don't have list all that stuff. Then I can go down that list. And for every one of those capabilities say, well, so what? Like I have advanced AI, whatever the heck it is, who cares? Why? Like, what does that deliver for a customer's business? And that's going to get me differentiated value. And then once I have that, I can say, look, I'm the only company in the world that can deliver this combination of this plus this plus this value. And then I can say, well, who cares a lot about that? Like, what are the characteristics of a company that makes them really, really care a lot about the value only I can deliver? That's how I define a best fit customer. And then market category is like, look, uh, you know, is this thing a database or a data warehouse? It's the context I position the product in such that this value makes sense to these people. And so in a nutshell, that's the methodology. It works like that.
Wow, great summary. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the um, speed run through it. That's, that's how we do it. Version. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen that, uh, the, the summary so fast. I love it. Thank you so much for putting that together. Such a, you You're know, not the first person that's asked me that question. <laughs> Yeah, and I was concerned. I was concerned when starting with this question that we would uh, be dragged along. But I yeah, think we'd we'll be talking really... about it for the next two hours, which I'm welcome to do. You know, I can I can do that too. But we we're gonna touch on that again. No worries. For sure. <laughs> the I think you touched on a couple of really interesting things. So the market you're in, it's a really important one. I wanted maybe to hear if you could yeah. drive with some examples. So you mentioned your company that or the company you worked at that repositioned yeah. in a new market. Could you, could you share uh, what was this example? Also, I really love the sure. lollipop example you give in your book. Uh, sure. Then you have the robots. I'm sure you have many more. And yeah, I love yeah. You know, yeah, go on. Like, it's really funny. Like When we talk about this stuff, theoretically, it's one thing, but you actually have to give people a bunch of examples to, to figure it out. And so for a long time, I would only give technical examples. But when I was trying to write the book, I thought, when I'm talking to tech companies and I'm giving them example, it usually helps people understand it. If you give them an example that has nothing to do with tech, because then people don't get all hung up on the tech. So, you know, the example I used to give all the time was, uh, cake versus muffins. Like it's the same thing. <laughs> like you make it the same way. It's the same thing. But you know, if I take the cake and put it in muffin shape, right. And position it as a muffin, that's very different. Like it is socially acceptable to eat a muffin for breakfast. It is not socially acceptable to eat cake for breakfast, even though I can go to the coffee shop down the road and get myself a chocolate chip caramel muffin and eat that for breakfast. <laughs> but if you called it cake, it'd be like, dude, you're eating cake for breakfast. That's not good. So, um, it, you know, the other example I used in the book was, you know, cake versus cake pop. Again, it's the same thing, but, you know, one's a snack and, and one's dessert. They're very different context. And so, you know, cake competes with different things. Cake competes with dessert, tiramisu, pie, other things. A, a, a cake pop, it, it competes with everything else that we might potentially eat with a, with a cup of coffee. So, you know, maybe it's competing with donuts. Maybe it's competing with a little cookie or something like that. But it's very different context. So technical products are the same. Like we... And generally where the problem comes with market category is, you know, the original inventors of the technology think about the product in a certain way. They launch it thinking it's a certain thing, but then, you know, maybe you change things or the market itself shifts, or maybe customers start using it in a way you didn't anticipate. And then it's better contextualized as something else. If I go to a brand new customer and want to explain what it is. So the example of the first company that I ever worked at was um, a little startup in Canada. It was called Wacom. They were famous for compilers. So in the early days of, I think their original product was a Fortran compiler. Nobody even does Fortran anymore. <laughs> so, but they, at the time I joined, they had a C compiler that was quite popular. Um, but they were very worried because Microsoft was getting into the compiler business and it looked like maybe they might get wiped out. And so they were looking for other products. So when they had talked to the developers that they sold their compilers to, they got talking about databases. And at the time, databases were big, complicated things. Like if you bought Oracle, it was very difficult to install and configure Oracle. You needed specialized help to do that. You could only install and configure it on big, big server hardware. You couldn't put it on a laptop. And these folks envisioned a database that would be really low footprint 
and just like clickety click, click, click to get it installed and anyone could do it. And, and it, it could live anywhere on a PC or, you know, and at that point, this was, you know, a long time ago and laptops were around. Not everybody had one, but they had really small resources. And so to put something on a laptop, you know, it had to be, you know, really lightweight. So this thing could run on a laptop. And that was the, and the idea was, is uh, this thing would be an alternative to Microsoft Access, which was, you know, not really a database, but a thing that developers were using as a little database thing that could run on a PC. So that was the thinking. We talked to customers about it. Everybody was all excited. Uh, and then we put it on the website. We're selling it for a hundred bucks a pop and, uh, and, and, and nothing crickets. <laughs> like, so we advertised it. Nobody wanted to buy it. I come on board and my first task was, April, we have 200 customers. We want you to call everyone and find out, are they going to cry if we stop supporting it? So I talked to 20 customers and 20 customers didn't even know they had it. They were like, they were like, sorry, lady. Like, I don't I don't think you made a mistake. And I'm like, no, I got a spreadsheet here, man. Like you bought it like February 2nd, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, that thing we use it for a day. It didn't work out. Yeah. We didn't know what to do with it. We stopped using it, yeah, whatever. And I was like, oh man, if we kill this thing, no one's going to cry. But then I got one guy and he was on the phone and he's like, oh my God, your thing is the greatest thing. And then he started to describe this use case and it wasn't what we expected. Like it was, he was like, I have these field sales reps with laptops, but they can't take an order in the field because the order management system runs on Oracle back in the office. So what they do is they actually write notes on paper and then they come back to the office and enter it in, but half the time they make mistakes or they forget something. And so it's really inefficient. And, you know, the reps have a hard time doing pricing because they're not on the order management system. So what this guy did was he, he used our database thing, put it on the laptop, wrote a little bit of code on top and so that people could take the orders in the field and then come back and plug the thing into the Oracle database. And because our stuff uh, supported ANSI standard SQL, our database could talk to the big Oracle database, like Microsoft Access couldn't do that. And, you know, and this was the thing. And he's like, it's amazing. You know, we're selling way more, whatever. And we're like, oh, that's weird. And so I did a hundred calls. I talked to a hundred customers and four or five of them were using this thing as an embedded database in a mobile device. And so I went back to the team and said, okay, good news, bad news, right? Like the, the, the good news is you want to shut that thing off. No one's going to cry. 94% <laughs> of the people that bought it didn't even know they have it. But man, there's a few really big fans. And so the idea that the company got was, well, maybe we could reposition and try to chase that market. If you think about it, that was a really big decision. Like, you know, we had to change the pricing. Like if you're going to sell to sales teams and have everybody run one on a laptop, like... I'm not buying onesie twosies of these things for a hundred buck off the website. Like that's now an enterprise sales motion. I'm going to sell the entire team. We're going to sell them 10 at a time, a hundred at a time potentially. And so anyway, so we, we tested that we tried it out and it was an absolute giant, crazy success. And so at, at its peak, like after we got acquired, so we got acquired by a big database company and that product continued to grow with a lot more resources behind it once we got acquired by a big database company. But it, at its peak, that database was on something like 85% of the cell phones in the United States of America. Like it was so popular and we could have killed it if 
you know, we had just looked at the data and said, well, 90, you know, 95% of the people don't even care. So if you think about market category, we originally conceived it as a kind of a lightweight database that ran SQL that was like comparable to access or a spreadsheet, like almost like desktop productivity software is the way we positioned it. The new positioning was it was an embeddable database for mobile devices and an SQL database. And that didn't exist at all. And it was cool positioning. Like, you know, we weren't creating a new category. Like people knew what a database were. And we're like, yeah, we're like a database for embeddable, you know, for mobile devices. And so that positioning was kind of genius in hindsight. Um, the trick was, you know, again, like I said earlier, was how do we do that in a repeatable way? Like, you know, when I when I tried to reposition the next thing, you know, you know it, 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 I didn't have a methodology to go do it. So that was the hard part. But yeah, so I think most products could potentially be positioned in multiple different market categories. We just kind of have to figure out what the best one is. And that example is very, um, I would say, straightforward, right? Because it didn't work. And then you were looking for a market that would work. Yeah. <laughs> how do you do? How do you do when it kind of work, but you might, you you know, you might, you might, maybe you should shift, right? Because this is one thing yeah. you wrote. You said you get to pick your market, meaning like assuming there might be multiple market for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you another example. So um, I worked with a company in Silicon Valley. They're called Postman. And Postman um, does, uh, well, right now, the way they position it is a platform for API development. Um, and so at the time when I was working with them, they had positioned themselves in a bunch of different ways. Like most people knew them as an API testing tool. So they had a free version of their product that people could use. And people really thought about them as an API testing tool. But if you looked at the breadth of things that they did, like, they, they were actually, uh, they had a tool for developing APIs, testing APIs, documenting APIs, distributing APIs. And so there was so much more they could do with APIs. At one point, they thought about it almost like a collaboration tool for APIs because developers, testers, people that worked in documentation could all look at it. It didn't quite work, though, because... It, it, the, the analogy kind of fell apart if you thought about people consuming APIs. Like, the, you know, there is a way to kind of collaborate with them, but that's not really the way customers think about it. So um, when we did the work, um, we had looked at the value that Postman delivers. And the value is really around soup, building a super high quality API. So, and the way most companies do it if they're not using Postman, is they have separate tools for each of these things, a separate tool for developing, testing, documentation, a completely different place that they use to do, you know, delivery of APIs out to end customers. And so when we got focused on that value, it was like, really what this is, is like an end-to-end -end platform for, you know, build, test, document, deliver APIs. And the value of that would be this high quality thing. So it wasn't like Postman's positioning was not working previously. Like they had 800,000 active users <laughs> when I was working with them. So like nobody could come along and say that was failing. <laughs> it wasn't. But I will say that making the jump to thinking about it as 
a platform for APIs was a big unlock for them. I think it made it a lot easier for their salespeople to tell the story of the value and why you should pick it. Uh, I think it made it got it got customers over the initial hump of what the heck is this thing? Isn't it just a testing tool? Uh, to thinking about it in a much bigger way. So most of the time when we're doing positioning work, that's what we're doing. Like we're we're generally not taking something that's totally failed and whatever and like pulling it out of the ashes and saying, let's try it again like this. Although sometimes we are. Um, but a lot of times what's happening is the market has shifted. The product has expanded its capabilities. Maybe you've done an acquisition. Things have changed. Maybe the way customers think about you have changed. And what we're doing is we're tightening it up so that it's a lot easier for a new customer coming in to really understand what is this thing and why should I care? Yeah, and, and it's, it seems like one of the approach you're taking is like talking with people who have been successful with the product, right? And understand what they've loved about the product and try to amplify yeah. that in a way. Yeah, like, like yes, yes and no. So it's interesting, like in the companies that I work with, um, typically what we've got is Sales knows something about how customers behave. Product knows something about the market and also how customers behave. Marketing understands about what gets a customer excited to get them in the pipeline in the first place. Marketing generally knows a lot about value, right? Because they think in those terms. Often you have a founder that used to be very involved in sales, but maybe isn't now that the company's grown up a little bit. And so what generally we have the raw materials to do positioning, which is, you know, sales knows who the customer compares us to. Um, product knows what capabilities we have that are differentiating from the other available things in the market. Marketing understands value and how customers think about value and what attracts a customer into the pipeline in the first place. And so, what I where I eventually landed it with with work my positioning work is if I could get the right people in the room I could actually pull the information out of them and we could figure it out the, the one big problem with relying on your customers to figure out positioning for you well there's actually more than one problem I'll give you a bunch one is in that first example where I talked about the embeddable database for mobile devices that was just luck like it was literally luck. Like if we had not managed to sell those five customers, we would have looked at the thing and said there was nothing. But we knew if we had gone through a process, we could have looked at, look, what do people compare us to? What do we have that's differentiating? And if we asked ourselves the question, you know, what value could this thing deliver? Like one of the key pillars of value is the thing has SQL. The other things that would fit on a mobile device or anything else do not have SQL. So that means we could actually do stuff on a mobile device and sync back to a big database back home. So we could have logic that out in our own without talking to a customer at all. It was lucky that a customer undiscovered this value, even though we didn't tell them about it. When we go and talk to customers about positioning stuff, often there is a very, very cool bit of functionality that product understands deeply, but sales doesn't necessarily understand it. So they don't know how to sell it to the customer. And if the customer doesn't discover it, they're never going to tell you about it when you go ask them. And so 
that keeps product people up at night. <laughs> and we have to consider that functionality, even if a customer may never mention it. So that's one thing. The second thing is when I talk to customers, often the customers are polluted with my existing positioning. So if I tell you this thing is desktop productivity software, that's how you're going to look at it. And if you bought it thinking it was desktop productivity software, again, it's just lucky if somebody said, I know you called it desktop productivity software, but I'm going to try it for, to use it for this other thing. If I come to them with new positioning and say, hey, existing customer that's using it for desktop productivity software, do you think it would be better if we positioned this in a embeddable database for mobile devices? Customers are going to go, no, <laughs> no, man, that's not how I use it. That's how I bought it. So your existing customers have already been polluted with your existing positioning. So if we want to make a shift in positioning, we have to use what we know about customers already. If we have a sales team, we know a lot, right? We know what their pains are. We know who they compare us to. We know how they make a purchase decision. We know how they move through a purchase process. If I don't have a salesperson now, I don't know any of that. I actually have to go and get that. And I have to do research to go figure it out. But if I have a salesperson, I actually know a lot of that stuff. And so... In the work I do with companies, uh, generally, if we get the right person, people in the room, and we have a good active sales force that has sold enough of this thing to understand the profile of a good fit customer, then we can actually do the do the positioning um, without necessarily relying on having the customer discover the positioning for us. That was actually going to be the next point. How do you how do you help? Uh, how do you recommend startups to go on? If you are not in the room, because you, you keep yeah. uh, you keep saying like when I'm when I'm in the room and I and I help these companies, like yeah. let's say for a small business that struggle with its resources, what what are some practical tips, uh, you know, for for improving the positioning? So basically, collecting what they already have and and gathering these people yeah. in the room, right? So you know, I wrote my first book, obviously awesome was kind of an attempt to solve that problem. So that book basically lays out the methodology that I use when I work with clients and exactly how to do it in book form. So if you're a small company, even if you're a big company, I usually recommend that people should try to figure out their own positioning on their own. Like, I don't think anybody needs a positioning consultant, to be honest. Like, I think you should only be talking to the positioning consultant if you're really stuck. So most folks I say, Take the book. And so in the book, I recommend, first of all, we need a cross-functional team because like I say, sales knows some stuff, marketing knows some stuff, product knows other things. So we can't just have this be a little project in the marketing department. That's going to be terrible results if you try to do it that way. So I recommend getting a cross-functional team together. And then when we get the cross-functional team together, it can't just be a free-for-all of opinions. Well, I, you know, and what, what, what companies will tend to do is they will either try to start with value or start with the market category. So they'll all get together and everyone will say, I don't think we're a database. I think we're a spreadsheet. We should position a spreadsheet. And that's just an opinion, man. <laughs> like everyone's going to argue. Or they'll say, I think the reason everybody loves us is because of X, Y, Z. And, you know, again, I think that's a bad way to do it. What will happen is it's just opinions. Whoever's the loudest will win. Um, instead, what I recommend is we start with, looking at competitive alternatives. Like sales knows the answer to this question. Who do we get compared to? We could get compared to whatever the status quo is in the account. So what's the account doing now? And that's super important. And then we look at who else ends up on a short list against us. Because if 
you know, there's lots of things we could compete with, but if it never ends up on the short list, then I don't have to worry about positioning against it. So now I got a stake in the ground. This is what I got to beat. This is what I have to position against. Then I can look at what capabilities do I have that are different from that list. And then that lists my differentiated capabilities and then map those capabilities to value. And I can figure out what my value buckets or my value themes are. And that's kind of is what it is. <laughs> so people are going to come in with their opinions about why people pick us. But if I build it up from competitors, which we know, differentiated capabilities, which we know, and then get to value, well, then that's kind of just the facts. Like that's not actually an opinion. That's, you know, it, it, people might think, oh, they buy us for another thing. But if we, if there's nothing differentiated about that, I can guarantee you, no, that's not why they're picking you over someone else because everybody else does that too. So if we build it up like that, it takes the, it takes the opinions out of it. So I think if I was a small company and I wanted to do this without me, um, I think one, you want a cross-functional team and two, you want some kind of a methodology. Mine's just one. Uh, that takes the opinions out of it and then so that you have something you can work through with the team instead of it just being a battle of opinions. And should people look first for the direct competitors um, or, or kind of like the broad uh, picture alternative? Because in my experience, this is one of the hardest challenges that founders may have. It's what, true. What, what the, Zoom, the Zoom level, right? Like, do you look for direct alternative or, you know, like indirect alternative right and I, i really yeah and the second question for you is i would love to hear how do you convince founders that don't want to start with a niche because they want to you know uh defend their grand vision to actually right. tackle a niche because I, i really feel it's one of the hardest thing yeah. for founders and it was also the case for me yeah so so this is so these are two things so I, let me start with competitive thing because i think it's important so um It is very interesting to me every time I do one of these workshops with a client, how much disagreement there is on the team about who do we compete with. <laughs> and so, and it's because each group on the team thinks about competitors differently. So if I go to sales and I say, who's our biggest competitor, they will name the company that they lost the last deal to. <laughs> They'll say, it's Oracle, man. <laughs> we lose to Oracle. And they, so sales is often very good at identifying things that end up on a short list. Once a customer is in a purchase process, and if they're looking at something that's not us, they'll know what land. They never tell me the status quo. <laughs> and status quo is really big competitor. We lose half our deals to status quo. Like if we're not thinking about status quo, we're not thinking about competitors, right? If I go to product, Product will generally give me a much longer list of competitors, like an absolute giant list of competitors. And product thinks about competition in a different way because they're worried about the roadmap. So they're worried about where the product's going. So they're not looking at just things that compete with us now. They're looking at things that could compete with us in the future. But the reality is with positioning, if a customer doesn't consider them a competitor, meaning a customer never puts them on a short list, Well, then I don't have to position against them. <laughs> like, it's just that simple. And a year from now or two years from now, if that company does start landing on a short list, well, then we can adjust our positioning then to take that into account. But I don't have to position against the ghost, you know, that just lives in product management's head, but doesn't actually, customer doesn't actually know anything about it. So often when we have disagreements about competitors, it's those two things. It's either We're not including the status quo, meaning we compete with a spreadsheet. We compete with manual labor. We compete with an intern. 
or we are considering a whole bunch of what I would call horizon competitors that might cause us pain next year or the year after. But until customers believe that they're competition, we don't have to position against them. Once we bring in the status quo and get rid of the ghosts, it's usually pretty straightforward who we have to position against. Um, and then the this second part of your question is like, you know, how do you convince the team or the founder to focus on something kind of narrow in, instead of things that are really, really broad? And I think this is very hard for teams, particularly new startups um, and particularly venture backed startups, because when you're raising money, you have to go in and tell this really big story, right? Like, like the, a VC is looking at your stuff and saying like, how are you going to be a billion dollar valuation company? How are you going to drive a hundred million dollars in revenue? So you can't come in there and say, oh, we're going to sell this little tiny little slice of something. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. They want to know what the big vision is 10 years from now. Who are you selling to? And what does it look like? And why is it gigantic? But when we think about positioning, your positioning is going to shift over time. Like your product doesn't actually do the thing yet that the vision is talking about. And so what we have to do in order to sell well today is we have to make a very compelling case for why pick me over the other guys right now. And often we have a product that only wins in a very narrow place. So if what we want to do is, is focus on our, our sales target, really. So if the sales target for this year is to do 10 deals, then the way we should be thinking about it is, is well, what's the easiest way to win 10 deals? <laughs> and once we got to 10 deals, then we're worried how we're going to do 20 and then how we're going to do 100. And the positioning will shift over time. So, it, you know, I worked at a company once where we, we had a product. We were very niche down into selling to investment banks because that was literally the only place where we could win. And the investors didn't like that at the beginning. They were like, wait, you know, we didn't write you a check to just be investment banks. How many are those? You know, they're so small, you'll never make any money. But the way we described it, and this is um, covered very well in the classic book, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, it talks about something called a bowling pin strategy. And the bowling pin strategy is you define the lead pin. In our case, it was um, investment banking. And then once you dominate investment banking, you knock over that pin and that gives you ability to reach the other pin. So if we're really good at investment banking, then that's going to give us a way to get into retail banking. And then once we're really good at retail banking, then that's going to give us a way to get into insurance. Now I got, now I'm positioned as CRM for financial services, and that's a huge market. And maybe at that point, I may then transition to, transition to being CRM for everybody or CRM, at least for enterprises. So I think where companies get stuck is they're thinking about the end state and they're thinking they have to position for that because they're going to do it once and then forget about it. And that's not true. It's a living thing. Like what you are this year and why people want to pick you this year is likely very different from what you're going to be two years from now or three years from now or five years from now. And that's okay. Like your positioning is going to evolve over time. And that often relieves everybody that they're like, okay, we're not just going to be this little niche thing forever. As we get success, we're going to widen it out. The joy of being the little niche thing right now is it's easy to sell. It's easy to market. And that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to stay alive to position in the bigger market later. Yeah, and I think I heard uh, once that the, the biggest enemy of a startup is not the competitors, it's just the unclarity. It's not being, right. it's not being clear about what they do. 
it, right. It's because customers look at it and go, I don't get what this is, man. <laughs> I can't figure it out. <laughs> I, can't, yeah, I can't buy from you. I don't know what to do. And in this, 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 I would love to get your, your, your eyes on this one. You, you mentioned that people value the, the value, right? Uh, it's one of the five pillars that you, you've been exploring. At the yeah. same time, you need extreme clarity when, when you, when you message your product and your services, right? Yeah. And so we're seeing more and more of this, especially B2B SaaS these days pitching the, the features on the, on the website now, yeah. not anymore the value prop. So yeah. what do you think is the relationship? What, what do you think is happening in terms of messaging there? Is it, is it a new trend? Is it just adding clarity? What's, what's the relationship no, between this, the features? I think this has always, this has always existed, right? So okay. what we really have to think about is value exists on a spectrum, right? And so we have features and then we have pure, pure textbook by the book value. <laughs> and often, um, uh, where we actually want to focus in our marketing on that spectrum depends on a bunch of things. One of the things it depends on is how educated the buyer is. So if the buyer can make the translation from feature to value because they're very familiar with it, it's a familiar feature, we know what it is, we know how it works, we know what it does, then I can just pitch you the feature. Like I see this, like if you're like I'm selling you a cell phone, right? I don't. I can say this camera has 59 megapixels, and you know that more megapixels is better than less megapixels. I don't have to tell you that. We know it. We, you know, we've been buying cameras on phones forever, so we know, and we know why. We know we can zoom in, and the picture is going to be clear, and all that sort of stuff. We know it, right? But if I come to you with a really differentiated feature, a feature that no other product in the market has and you've never seen it before, I can't assume that you can do the translation from feature to value. I'm going to have to do it for you. And so there are lots of examples of companies that had amazing technology and amazing features, but absolutely failed because customers failed to do the translation from feature to value. Now, the other end of the spectrum is, is where we have this pure, pure, pure value but it's so generic and watered down, it's meaningless. And so we don't want that either. So, you know, the example I'm always given is like when I go to, when I go to the airport in Toronto, there's a bank called HSBC and they own all the billboards in the airport. So you go in the airport, you're surrounded by these HSBC billboards and the billboards are so like big picture, you know, they have this billboard and it says together apart. And I'm like, are you a bank? <laughs> like, what is that? I don't know what that is. So if you think, if I sell B2B software, if I extrapolate out to pure, pure, pure value, I only got two things. I'm either helping you make money or I'm helping you save money. And that's it. <laughs> There's nothing else. So if I'm, if I got a website and say, buy our stuff, cause we're going to help you save money. So does everybody else, Jack. Like there's nothing differentiating in that. So or what we actually have- Or fast or easy, right? All these things, right? It's so generic and all of your competitors can make the same claim. So what we really want when we're talking about differentiated value, the differentiated matters. In fact, it's the key thing. So if I'm talking about a value statement and all your competitors can say the same thing, you've got it wrong. <laughs> so what we want to do is we want to look at the feature and we want to say, okay, we have this whiz bang new AI thing, let's say. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, so what? Why does a customer care about that? 
what's the value to the business that the customer, you know, why would a customer want to buy something with that feature? And we want to go, so what, so what, so what, until we get to the point where the customer can do the translation from feature to value. But we don't want to go, and we don't want to go past that. If we go past that, now we're getting into the realm of this vague thing and everybody can say it. So for some features, you can just say the feature and they know how it's valuable because everybody's got it. But in general, your whiz-bang new stuff, your differentiated features, the real reason why they pick you over everybody else, it, it, you need to be very careful there that you're making sure that the customer knows what the value of that feature is. If they don't, then you're going to have to do the translation for them. Then it's losing its own purpose. Yeah, that's right. We then touched, it's losing its purpose. We, we touch we touch a bit on the on the impact of positioning in the beginning and and across across the discussion. But could you could you give us a couple of KPIs maybe that you think are drastically improved when the when the positioning is nailed? I, yeah. I think one thing I remember from you uh, is that you explained very clearly that if you sell what you build then you're going to likely increase, you know, the activation and all these kind of product metrics just because now people come for the good reason and they're more likely to be satisfied. And I yeah. think this was the hard moment for me with your book to realize yeah. that actually the full value chain could depend on the early promise. That's right. So, and this is part of what's really frustrating with positioning. Like if your positioning is bad, it's going to get you across the whole funnel, the whole mm -hmm. funnel, right? Because... If your positioning is unclear, you're going to have customers coming in that look like leads because they think you do something that you don't. <laughs> and then they come in and they get to sales and sales pitches them and they're like, what, what, this isn't what I thought it was. And then they drop out. Sometimes you have really talented salespeople and the salespeople will close them and then they will get using it. And then they'll be like, oh, this doesn't deliver on the promise that I thought you made. And then they drop out there. So what you'll get is, you know, the leads are coming in. There might be too few of them. They might be poor quality. Leads are dropping out all across the funnel. You know, the leads that you thought were good were not good. And then they're dropping out. Your churn rate is high because people are getting to use the thing and it's not the thing that they thought it was. So it's actually killing you everywhere. And so when the positioning is really good, then it actually improves everywhere. So if the positioning is really tight, then it's attracting people that are best fit customers into your funnel, and it is actively repelling ones that are not a good fit. Um, you'll, you'll really hear it in sales calls, in my opinion. First sales call, bad positioning sounds like this. Customer comes in, rep is doing a great job pitching your stuff, and they'll get, you'll get halfway through a pitch. Like the rep is explaining, you know, this is what it is. Let me show it to you. And you'll see the customers making this face like, and then they'll be like, wait, can you just back it up? Like back it up, back it up, back it up to the beginning. That's the thing I hear the most is the customer interrupts the rep and says, wait, 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 go back. I, I must've missed something. So, so, you know, pitch it to me again from the beginning. So they're not quite, it's not quite clicking what the thing is, or you'll get this comment where the customer will say, Oh, I, I get what you are. I know exactly what you are. You're just like Salesforce and you're not, you're nothing like Salesforce. <laughs> so they're comparing you to things that you aren't is a sign of weak positioning. Um, or the other one you'll get is they'll say, yeah, I get what, I get what you are. I totally get it. I just don't get why anyone would pay for that. Like, can I just use my spreadsheet for that? Like, can I just use my accounting system for that? So you'll get that. Um, when the positioning is really good, 
often what you'll get, what you'll hear in a sales call is impatience. So, you know, the customer gets what you are, they get it in the marketing phase, they'll come in, you have a sales rep and they'll get on and the rep will be saying, Hey, like we do this and we do that. And the customer will be like, yeah, 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 I get it. Just, you know, just, I got a, I got a list of questions. Just tell me how you do the integration with whatever, or tell me how you do whatever. Tell me what it costs. Like it's stuff talking. <laughs> and, and you want this. So it's hard on to, to look at metrics and, and, and point to the metric and say, if your number gets below this, that's bad because all you can compare to is your own metrics. But I have seen that when we, uh, when we unlock better positioning, the first place we tend to see the stress relieved is we can immediately take that positioning and turn it into a better sales pitch and we will get better activation at that first sales call. We should get better deals, better quality deals, um, moving, moving from, uh, you know, a, a, a lead to an opportunity faster. Um, and then what we've got is it's going to take us a while to change the marketing and have the lead gen stuff do its job on the upfront. But eventually what we should see is a lot of friction coming out of the entire funnel. So what it feels like when you're doing it is like bad positioning feels like sales is like rolling a rock up a hill, right? Good positioning just feels like they have the, you know, the rock's rolling down the hill. We're barely touching it you know, and, and everything's good, but it's really hard to pick a metric on this thing because it really gets you all over the place. That was the answer I expected <laughs> anyway. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so that leads me to my last question. Very naturally, sure. sales pitch is your upcoming book, new book. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit what it's about? Why did you feel to the need to write a, a, another book? Yeah. So, um, so when I wrote the first book, like, first of all, I'm a freaking engineer. Like I'm not a book writer. <laughs> like, I'm not, like I'm not an, like that's not my, I'm not an author. Um, but I wrote the first book because I thought it deserved to exist. Right. Like, like people don't know how to do positioning. I'm going to write it down in a book and all the people that want a methodology do positioning, they can use mine. That book ends with talking about how, what's a good way to test positioning. And so I believe a good way to test positioning is to take the positioning, translate it to a sales pitch, train a good rep on it and then test it with live prospects and see how it lands. And, and I ended there, uh, but when a client works with me uh, as a consultant, we never end there. Like we actually do the positioning and then we translate it into a sales pitch there so that we can test it. Um, here's the thing that I noticed from working with clients and, and people that just did their own positioning using the book. If we just did the positioning, figured out the five component pieces, marketing was very happy. Marketing would run off and they're like, we know what the value props are. We know how to change the messaging. We're good. Sales, however, was scratching their head a little bit going, I get it. Intellectually, I get, we compete with this. We're different this way. Here's who we're going after. I just don't get how that changes our yeah. story. How does it change my life? Yeah. Exactly. So what would happen is, marketing would would update this positioning and then the new positioning would not survive the jump from marketing to sales because mm. sales would fall back into using the same pitch they were always using or worse they would just be pitching features they'd just be like we're going to do a feature walkthrough and here you know we, we here's how you log on here's all the drop down menus i'm just going to walk you through drop down menus you figured out customer and so um so it, i think it's you know building the, making the 
transition from the positioning to a sales pitch is super important for making the sale, for making the positioning actually stick. So I had assumed wrongly that most companies ha- had a structure or there were a multitude of structures out there for building a sales pitch and people could just take the positioning and plug it into that. What I've discovered from working with a couple hundred companies, including really, really big companies, that that is actually extraordinarily rare. Most people have one of two things. They're either doing a pure feature pitch where they're just doing a product walkthrough and they're not attempting to do any positioning at all, or they're doing, you know, there's a deck that surrounds that that demo and it gives a little bit of product background. It might have a customer success story, but there's no real structure to it. And so uh, I had learned a, a, a pitch deck structure ages ago. So when I first started doing pitches, it, you know, I thought pitches like that were fine. And then I got a job at IBM and you know, we don't do anything willy-nilly at IBM. Like so there was a pitch structure that IBM used, but it was very very specific to IBM, but that was the first time I had ever seen a structure with a logic to it where people said, well, it needs to have these pieces and they need to go in this order. Um, when I left IBM, I went to another startup and most of the IBM pitch structure was very specific to big, big deals. Cause we were doing 10 million plus deals. The company I went to the average deal size was less than hundred K. And so I took bits and pieces of that structure and, and attempted to create a startup version of a sales pitch structure. Um, the first time I tried it was with this company that I worked with. It actually worked really well. We grew really fast. Company got acquired. And, and then I went to the next company and they were a little bit different. And so the structure needed to look a little bit different. So I've been tinkering with this sales pitch structure for probably 15 years. Um, and so every client that I've worked with has gone through my sales pitch structure. And it's often in the workshops, there's this sort of unlock. Like everybody's like, whoa, like I never, I never thought about doing a sales pitch like that before. And so again, I got to the point where I was like, people need a, people need a methodology for how to do this. They don't just know how to build a sales pitch. So I thought, well, I could write down what I do with my clients right now. Here's the structure. There's eight piece parts to it. Here's how the positioning maps into those eight piece parts. And you can use this as a starting point for building a sales pitch for your company that reflects the new positioning. So that's what the new book is all about. I'm pretty excited. It's in pre-orders right now, but it it launches October 5th, I think is my launch date. So I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast. Maybe it's available now. If it's not, you can pre-order. Amazing. It should be out before. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to reading awesome. this one too. And I'm sure it's, uh, it's uh, as great as the, the other one. I think it's going to be helpful to people. Like, like I say, I think there's lots of ways to do positioning. I think there's lots of ways to do a sales pitch, but I think a lot of people just aren't used to thinking about it in a structured way. And so I think having a structure for people to start with is going to be, is going to result in way better sales pitches. At least I hope so. 100%. It's going to help people save time and time is the most precious assets of a startup. So it's going to be helpful. <laughs> the other thing I'll throw out since I know we're at the end of this thing is that like, it, like if you're listening to this podcast and you want to learn more, there's a couple other things I'd point you at. So, I mean, there's the two books, which is basically everything I know about this stuff is contained in these two books. But after I wrote the first book, like some people had questions that were really more deep esoteric stuff. So, so I have a podcast now that is very focused on getting into the gory, grimy details of how to actually operationalize this stuff or what happens when you get in a jam and you're doing a positioning thing. So it's called positioning with April Dunford. So that's another resource. If you want to go like do the 
crazy deep dive into positioning and sales pitch stuff, you can go there. Awesome. That was going to be my last question. And uh, <laughs> so the podcast, the two books, and yeah. uh, where, where should people connect with you? Where do you prefer people to connect? Uh, yeah. So I'm fairly active on LinkedIn right now. Like I yeah. can't do a lot of social channels all at once because, you know, I'm just a person and I like to actually manage my own social stuff. So uh, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So you can look me up April Dunford. Um, if you're interested in like how you might work with me or any other resources, or you want to find the podcast, aprildunford.com is my website. So you can go there. Awesome. I'll make sure I point all the resources we discussed today uh, awesome. below the episode. Thank you so much, April, for coming. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to the June podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and subscribe. This episode is powered by June. For a better way to do product analytics, visit june.so.